Hey guys, my name is Brad Sundberg and this is In the Studio, the podcast. If this is your first time tuning in with me, you might want to go back one episode because this is part two of a really great conversation I had with Matt Forger. If you don't know who Matt Forger is, uh, you probably know an artist by the name of Michael Jackson who worked with Matt on many, many projects. Matt is a great guy and a very dear friend of mine for years and years. So now we're going to continue my conversation with Matt and we're going to focus very specifically on a project that we were all really proud to have been a part of called Captain EO. So welcome to part two of my conversation with Matt Forger. My name is Brad Sundberg and this is In the Studio, the podcast. And we're going to create a, a 3D movie that's going to go in, into specially built uh, theater in Disneyland. So it's going to be the Disney Imagineering. It's going to be the, what was that, Industrial Light and Magic? Or Industrial? Yep, ILM, yep. ILM. And it's going to be uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Because uh, Michael's a huge fan of, of, of film and of uh, Francis Ford Coppola's movies. I mean, you know, Star Wars is like, you don't get any bigger movies than Star Wars, except maybe, you know, E.T. with Steven Spielberg. And it's like, wait, my head is spinning. Like, whoa, this is going to, and he goes, we're going to do, we're, the, the movie's going to be in 3D and we're going to have the sound in 3D. And I'm like, my head is spinning because it's like I'm trying to absorb all the stuff that Michael's telling me. It's like, uh, I'm not understanding all of this, but wow, everything Michael's saying is like spectacular. Oh, my goodness. What are, what are we going to do? So I was like, it was like somebody hit me with a stun gun because I couldn't conceive of what this was going to be. And then slowly it started to unfold. I started to see storyboard sketches. Michael said, the first thing we have to do is we have to, uh, in the studio, is we have to create the music that's going to be used in this. So that was where the music composition started. Uh, John Barnes would start with like saying, okay, and Michael said, come up with ideas. Come up with ideas for grooves. We need a theme song. We need dance music. We need, we need all these different kinds of things. So come up with all different kinds of musical ideas. So that led to uh, myself and John Barnes uh, sitting in the studio and developing ideas. John was uh, very prolific at coming up with just thoughts and ideas. And Sure. You know, it was that same way uh, that that Michael had worked because we had just finished Centipede. Uh, so it was like we knew the model was uh, if Michael had an idea or a phrase or a groove or a melody, that was what we worked off of. But Michael would always say, just come up with ideas. So we, th we were throwing things together just in small little pieces of music just to see, does Michael like the idea? Does Michael like, like the style of this? Does he like where this one's going or that one? And there was a whole bunch of those that we, we did. We must have done, I want to say, around 10 of these little just like snippets of stuff. Right. Uh, and then from those snippets of stuff uh, came what were the actual, the ones that Michael really liked and said, oh, yeah, I, I can, you know, see the melody and the lyric for how, what's going to fit with that groove. And so certain things got developed and certain things, as typical, just, you know, fell by the wayside. Right. I mean, just to to kind of take a step back, you you and you and Barnes, Barnes is a little bit older than you? I'm not trying to... Probably. Because he, he had been, you know, a serious studio musician, a well, very well-established studio musician in Los Angeles, but you're you're still a couple pretty young guys in, in a studio all by yourself. I mean, did you feel the weight of it a little bit? Well, we we did not feel the weight of it when it was John and myself. 
and we were just doing musical stuff. It was like, right. hey, this is a cool idea. And I would, I in my mind would just think of uh, how to embellish what John was coming up with these little cute musical little ditties. We had no idea where this was going, so we were just having fun. No, and I, and it's funny because this is, I mean, I clearly remember starting at Westlake, and yeah, I don't remember the first moment I met you, but I'm pretty sure it was on EO, I, th- I think. Yeah. And I remember going into that room, and you guys were having an absolute ball. Yeah. And, and it was, it was so, so cool that, uh, and I'm not even talking about Michael specifically at the moment, but just, you and John and the camaraderie, and it, even though I, I mean, I didn't know anything. I was just a kid. But to think of where that started, the fun that you guys were having, which you can hear in the in the final product. I mean, there, there's just it's there's the music is so fun and energetic. But I'm not sure that even I understood. Yeah, how how big this thing was going to get, and how many years of continuous playback it was going to get around the globe. Well, I had no idea. It was just that when you work with Michael Jackson, as you know, it's a fun experience because Michael enjoys what he does so much. When he would go to the studio it. And work, it was like you know, I mean, there'd be those days when Michael would come in very business, serious business today. Got to make sure I nail the the lead vocal on a ballad so he would be focused. But the days that he would come in and he would be loose and he'd be in one of those moods and you would just do st- crazy stuff and Michael go, oh yeah yeah yeah, do do this and add this note and, and, and give it that give it a give it a a hand clap there and, and he would be laughing along with us and it would be like yeah the three of us when the three of us were there or if it was just John and myself. We were just like yeah, kids in a in a, a toy store, uh, you know, exploring. Uh, you know, hey, this is an erector set. What can we build with an erector set? <laughs> let's, let's build a car. Now, it's, <laughs> now, at some point along the line, did did Chris Carell join you guys? Uh, Chris came on board because uh, John left the project. Uh, huh. But that was at a latter point in time that was actually in bad album well because movie projects for those people who don't know how long an album project takes an album project you can do an album project in a few months a movie project is a few years because of the complexity of all the different departments especially when you have all the special effects and you have computer-generated gra- you know, uh, stuff, and then you have sound design over here, making the, the laser beam, and, and, and you have... I, I, I always tell people, I like the music business because if you get half a dozen guys in a room together, you can make a finished product. In the movie right. industry, it takes typically... If I say a hundred, it's an it's a conservative number when you consider right, yeah, all yeah. of the a few hundred, yeah, several hundred. Yeah, yeah it, it goes into the can well go yeah exactly it can go well over a hundred into, into several. Uh, when you, when you get all of the complicated nature of how uh, not only does all, do all of these creative people have to create what they create, but it has to be coordinated and it has to be logically assembled in, in a fashion and, and brought together. That takes a huge team of people, right. uh, which is what we had on Captain Neo. Captain Captain Neo took every bit as much work as any full-length feature film of, of that era, of that of that type of nature, like a science fiction type. Uh, and and I believe, and and you and I have talked about this uh, in in my seminars. I, I used to have a lot more of the facts kind of in front of me, but. Um, I believe it's the most expensive movie ever made per minute. I, I think, I think so. in those dollars, it was something like one point one million dollars per minute or something of screen time. Pretty staggering numbers. Well, this was the what what I understood. Yes, and and I say that because uh, I don't want to say they made the whole movie twice, but this movie had been planned by Disney specifically to go in. I think they called it, was it the Magic Eye Theater? Right, the Kodak Magic Eye Theater in Epcot and Disneyland. Right. And what 
they had been doing at Disney was they had had a long-range plan to do something of this nature. And they had done a whole bunch of uh, production work in-house uh, because Disney is, is, they have a studio lot. They, they, sure. they crank out feature films. And they had done uh, an incredible amount of work. Uh, and I think this was before, the, I mean, this was uh, very clearly before, you know, Michael had the conversation with uh, myself and John Barnes about it. But they were doing a lot of testing, a lot of special effects test shots of what they could create because Disney had to know what that, that they were going to present something. And if it wasn't state-of-the-art for special effects, it's, it, it wasn't going to fly it, it, for the public because you're going to go in and see a, a, a science fiction, fantasy, outer space adventure movie, and if it doesn't have a look that, that is is convincing enough, especially viewing it in 3D. So I don't know for how long they had been working before they realized Lucas, they had to go to an industrial light and magic and sound and they they had to bring in the very best of the technology and the people who had the most expertise and the best track record was George Lucas and, 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 and the entire Lucas organization. I mean, the amount of work that they did, uh, a phenomenal uh, amount of work, because, you know, so much of this stuff is uh, done by photographing miniaturized models of spaceships in miniaturized landscapes and settings. It it is uh, tremendously expensive and time-consuming and detail-oriented. So you may be factually correct because... Not only that, but the camera that they used to photograph it in 3D was a specially built one-of-a-kind. <laughs> uh, I think Panavision was the company that made uh, uh, those style of cameras back when it was film. Right. But this camera alone was a mammoth behemoth. It was the size right. of a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> it, was, it was gigantic. It was gargantuan. Because of the complexity of, of, of the nature of creating a 3D movie. And, and again, I, I'm almost circling back to my same question, but I, and I say this as a compliment. I, I just think it's so cool. The music, I mean, obviously, Captain EO is, is big music, big visual effects, Michael Jackson, the, the seats in the theater shaking, the whole thing. And, and we'll get to the uh, digital sound or the surround sound in a second. But with all that stuff going on and cameras the size of a VW bug and everything, and it comes down to you and Barnes and Michael, I just think it's cool because there's the weight of that project, and yet I was still able to kind of pop my head in and watch you guys work and just see how jovial it was is cool. I, I, I think I'm not sure if people understand that uh, – yeah, you've got ILM, and you can imagine just the, those enormous sets and everything that's going on, and miniatures. You guys creating the music in in a little studio on Beverly Boulevard. I think it's awesome. I I, I never thought it in that of it in that perspective. It was it was you know my whole life with Michael Jackson. The the thought that I was working with the most popular entertainer in the world never crossed my mind because I was working with oh my come friend. on no I was working come with on, my man. friend and it was Michael. <laughs> And, and, and I, he was like my buddy, and because that's what that's what it developed into, you know, the thr- the thriller album experience, uh, and then that experience that followed, which we're we're talking about now, that period of time, and then through the experience of the entire year that I worked on Bad before Bruce and Quincy Jones even came on board. Right. I mean, there was a tremendously long amount of time there. No, you, no, you, you and that, Michael had a, a beautiful, really cool friendship. Well, the so thing was is that I got him. I understood yeah. him. Michael was a different person even before Thriller. Thriller was the thing that validated all the things 
that Michael had in his mind. That whole era, that person that Michael was, I, I, I was living the same life in, in, in my mind. I mean, I came from Syracuse, New York, <laughs> uh, and I did all kinds of crazy things in my life that took me to L.A., but my whole life was, was having fun doing what, what I wanted to do. I mean, I worked on cars and boats and airplanes and all kinds of art and uh, crazy electronic lighting and then I built sound equipment and, and, and played guitar for myself. I was, wasn't good enough to be in a band and perform. But I knew I wanted to do something in my life that I enjoyed and had fun right. doing. So every day that I got to go to the studio and work was like, <laughs> this is like, this is my dream. This is, the, yeah. and, and, and I enjoyed it and I had fun doing it. And I had fun exploring. That's, that was the thing. Uh, when I say I related to Michael was there was that thing about being young and having the thrill and the joy of discovery, right. of, of ex exploration, of the... <laughs> What do you? What happens when you? What, you, what if we try this and that and add what, this what, patch? What What happens if we have a bowl full of, of, uh, what is it? Baking soda, and then you 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 pour the vinegar in the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> what, what happens then? <laughs> you know, and then, oh my goodness! Uh, you know, it, it 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 foams up like crazy. But there's that kind of thing that when you are allowed to discover things on your own. And this is where um, you talk about sounding like an old person. Um, the uh, thrill and the joy uh, of being a young adult or a child or an adolescent and just being turned loose in the world to, to entertain yourself. And in doing so, just being able to go out there in the world and just explore and discover and have a friend that's uh, maybe his dad's got this kind of equipment and my dad had all kinds of tools and mechanical stuff and woodworking tools so I would explore and that was just an extension of, of who I was and what my life was and I could see Michael was a kindred soul in the fact that he was doing the same thing in music uh, that I could never even dream of. That's awesome. We had fun together, you know, exploring the possibilities of, of, of what could be. And there's nothing like having a recording studio at your disposal to be able to go in and play it. So how do you do you have any recollection? How long did you work on the Captain EO project? Approximately. Well, we started it around we must have started it in eighty four. Yeah. Because that was the time period of Centipede and the Victory album and the Victory Tour. That was kind of the 84-ish era. Right. We did a whole bunch of work. And then because films go into what they call editorial. Right. Where they're cutting the film and they're making sure that the special effects are right. And they're deciding uh, how to edit it and... and how the elements are going to work. They did that for about, I want to say, a couple of years. So, a couple of years? Well, I had to go back, and then all of that fun music that I recorded with John Barnes, I then had to go back into the studio. I had to take a break from working on the Bad Album uh, to complete Captain EO. Okay. Because... Uh, Bad was released when? 87. 87, okay. So yeah, we worked on it all through 86. Yeah. So, the, so most in, of 86. In part of 86, if we started it in 84, I was finishing it up in 86. <laughs> okay. So maybe it was a year or year and a half that they were doing their editorial stuff. Okay. So there's there's two, I guess we'll call them MJ pop songs uh, from Captain EO. Uh, we are here to save the world, and uh, just another part of me, or another part of me. Um, I actually watched Captain EO last night. I fired it up, and uh, I don't know when the last time is you sat and watched it, 
but uh, I fired. I, I actually had my Westlake BBS M8s, and uh, and it was really fun just to uh, kind of settle in and watch it again. But I know you worked on those two pop songs. I want to talk about those in a second. But did you guys? You guys also did. I mean, there's just a, a whole score in the back. Of, you know, all through that movie. What what happened was the way the the sound where the music came together for that was the first, I believe it's uh, approximate half of, of the time, I happened to be working on a song that I had to reference something, uh, which brought me back to James Horner. Right. Uh, who, again, another person we lost way too soon. Right. There was something about the... Uh, theme song to uh, Titanic that someone was using as a reference point for a project I'm working on. So I had to go back and uh, hearing James Horner's music that he did for Titanic uh, reminded me of him composing the, the first half of the soundtrack and being able to actually go to the soundstage when they actually recorded it as well. Hmm. Uh, which was amazing. When there's a 100-piece orchestra in the next room and you're on the other side of the glass. <laughs> <laughs> it's wow. like thunder. Wow, is that is that spectacular to see that. Where, where was that recorded, Matt? Do you remember? That was on, uh, what's the lot uh, in Century City? Was that the old Paramount lot? Is it, Well, let's see. It was C, CBS, CBS is Burbank, uh Yes, yeah, yeah. Paramount was was on the west side. Yeah, they they have a huge soundstage there that can accommodate you know a hundred piece orchestra. I forgot okay. the, I forgot the name of the room. I forgot the room has a name which I've momentarily escapes me. But a a lot of uh, movie soundtracks have been recorded in there because that's okay. what that room is for. Because a hundred piece orchestra it, it, it can accommodate. Yeah, very that's well. a that's just a huge orchestra. It is. Uh, it is a huge orchestra. So I was just talking to Brian Vibberts about this uh, last week. He he worked on the soundtrack for Pocahontas, and we were talking about that. That I think was about a sixty-piece orchestra uh, in in New York, and we were kind of talking about the chronology of how the film is shot and the sound, the score, and the and then kind of the pop, the the singles and things like that. So when you were working on the music, well, we'll talk about the score in particular. Most of the visuals had already been shot, right? Or some well, of yes, them? Well, because, yes, because when it comes... Well, the music, because of the nature of Captain EO, there were a lot of dance sequences. Right. And they had to have the, 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 the music to dance to. So we had all of those musical components in... in rough mix form. Right. So they shot the film to playback of the music that John Barnes and I had, had recorded when we were having fun. There's a lot of stories about that process. Then the, 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 the tape sits on a shelf until they get enough of the movie edited together till they say, okay, this is what we think the movie's going to look like. This mm -hmm. isn't quite done. But then you start working with the music against picture. You start synchronizing and uh, running the, the actual film with the music that now you had recorded previously. If this was uh, the, the James Horner portion, they didn't need his music to be completed to shoot that part of the footage. But we had to have Michael Jackson's music recorded. The choreographers had to work out the dance routines before they shot the, the dancing scenes. And, and even if you haven't, uh, you know, finished all the, the, you know, final mixes, the, you know, there's still going to be some overdubs, at least you're sending enough, uh, enough of the track to the soundstage that they can at least work and shoot. Well, and you guys are still in the... Especially when uh, you have a singer, uh, not of uh, someone who's, who's not only dancing, but also singing, you have to have his vocal... <laughs> That's part of Michael's performance in the movie. 
Right. So all the, 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 this is why the complexity of that movie. Oh, it's it's extremely complex. Exactly. And then it comes back, and now, okay, now, that vocal that he sang back two years ago, <clears throat> now, okay, is that going to work here? Is Michael going to want to re-sing it? Are we going to... But now we've got to restructure the music because now they have cons- they've they've pieced together what the f- the plot line and the action sequences in such a way that you know when you see a drawing on a piece of paper it's it's only he, here's a guy with his arm outstretched it's not, right. it's it's not like oh this is you you know you know the timing of how many seconds happen between every individual thing, every twist, every turn. As you know, when Michael dances, every dance move has a sound accompanying it. Right. So that level of complexity and the amount of work that goes into putting this together and uh, conforming it, that this part of the process is called conforming. Again, extremely complex because Michael's music is very complex music. This was when, when you... Uh, you were still working at Westlake at this time? Yeah. Because you were working on, uh, at, at uh, Westlake on Bad. When... Yeah, I would have been on Bad most of this. Yeah, when you were over, I know I came over and saw your mix rig. Well, this, um, I want to talk about... This, this is what happened. I was working in Westlake Studio D conforming Michael's uh, soundtrack to picture when I had to vacate that room... <laughs> and moved to Studio A, which we had done Thriller in, which was slightly smaller because Studio D right. is so big. It was, it was a beautiful room to work in. I think another project came in that was another Michael Jackson project. Cause I think you're right. I think that was I the Bad think... Album at that point. So we had the Bad Album going on at the same time that you were mixing EO over in Studio A. All right, so well, I actually have two questions. Uh, first question is... You mentioned, you know, when Michael's dancing, all those little sound effects, the little shakers and all that. Was that you and Barnes, or was that a, a Foley team, or who, who was doing the, those it was a combination. sounds? It was a combination. Okay. There, okay. There, there were body movement sound elements that were musical in nature, and then there were things like when he walks... That are footsteps that are Foley nature. That's Foley stage. So this was like two departments that had to coordinate. Like this, this thing is Foley. This thing is the music. This is the which again, the complexity of the coordination. Yeah, somebody's got to decide who's doing what. Yeah, along with the guy who's creating the, the the special effect of the light thing flashing across the screen to to coordinate with. The, every, everyone else and the, the movement. It's, 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 it's a tremendous uh, collaborative uh, endeavor. Right. And, and then um, back in 1987, uh, 88, somewhere in there, I mean, there, there was such a thing, and I, I've, I've done no research on this other than you and I have had this conversation before, but I think people were used to something called Dolby Surround or Surround Sound or something, but there was up to that point, there was never a true discrete, what I would call a 5.1 surround system until Captain EO. So Captain EO was the first. There had been one demonstration put on by some technical people. It was kind of one of those in the future. This is what we are going to have. <laughs> which were they they were introducing the idea of 5.1 to the film industry right because the film industry is so big and all the equipment is so different uh it, it, you have to prepare uh, someone to let them know oh by the way uh, it's like when you go to the world's fair and they say oh and in the future we're going to have right. We're going to have a teleporter, and you can just yeah yeah we're yeah we're supposed to have uh, flying cars by twenty twenty, and I, I haven't seen those yet. Yeah. But. So so it was only much later. At some point, I was doing some research uh, because someone had asked me the question, and I, I was brought back to Captain Neo that I <laughs> that I realized I mixed the first 
5.1 movie that was for public uh, viewing. Which is amazing. It, well, it is because uh, everyone knows 5.1 uh, home theater sound now. I mean, it's in, if anyone's got a home entertainment system, that's the standard. Right, five point one, seven point one. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, you but you. I mean, it's just. So I remember walking into uh, Westlake Studio A, and I I was still pretty pretty wet behind the ears and just a kid that just loved being in recording studios. And the more speakers, the more wires, the more everything, the better. And I I couldn't do the description justice of how cool that setup was. Um, I think you had five. Were you mixing on tannoys at that point? I had, I, I believe they were tannoys. I, I think you had five tannoy. Uh, five tannoys uh, around the room. Yep. And and, and, and a sub. Uh, some, uh, yeah, a sub. Of some kind. And then you had a separate mixer, a separate monitor mixer. Uh, feeding into all the amps for the room. Yes. I, I could draw the thing out if I were an artist. I still remember it so clearly. And it was just, I don't want to say that it was a mess because I don't want to insult you or Bruce. I think Bruce Weinstein was your was your assistant. But it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Well, and I was like... The, the thing that I can equate it to is when you see the cockpit of, a, of a, an airplane, like an airliner. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... We had that much equipment in the room that there was one little path that we could yes. use to, to walk. And then I would sit down at the, at the console to mix, and there was a, there was a console on the right. Yep. And, and uh, there was something else on the, on the left side of me, and then we had the, the – uh, we were working off video for projection. We had the speakers around the room, and we had – Several tape machines. Yes. I mean, there were several because we were mixing from multiple multi-track machines <laughs> to, to, to another multi-track. To an, yes. I, I, I want to say what we ended up taking to the Lucas place was it was broken out. Right. It was more like it was stems. Mm -hmm. So the complexity of it was there wasn't you, you you had to you had to just get yourself in position and then you could sit down and, and you it was just a, a surround equipment surrounding you on on all sides because there was equipment and speakers behind me and around me and uh, uh, the Bruce had his position because he had a lot of very complicated. Uh, synchronization equipment that he was running, besides running the, the all of the tape machines, because we were doing very complicated synchronization things, uh, right? In, in the process of conforming, so it was and, uh, pretty pretty high tech. Yeah, and and again, I don't want to get too too techy on this stuff. But yeah, you've got to be using time code. It was probably a twenty nine nine seven drop frame or something to to match the film. So everything has to yes. be very well coordinated to match audio to picture for 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 when it gets put together. Yeah, that's uh, you're you're going full geek here. Uh, <laughs> yes, you are absolutely correct. To to lay the groundwork so that so people understand this, Disney is such a an enormous company. They have Imagineering, which is a, an entire engineering wing of their company that develops from the first concept uh, all of their attractions all of their mm -hmm. things that involve movement of people through space or maybe you're stationary and the space around you is moving or whatever it is they have to develop the mechanical and the electronic or the digital equipment and technology that allows all this to come off. So Disney had to actually develop all of the technology to create the 5.1 playback. It was uh, proprietary stuff. They had special specialized equipment that they were the only people that had it because they invested the money to create <laughs> a 5.1 system prior to that technology existing. 
So they went to enormous lengths, and they also were in partnership with the company. The it was a, it, I want to say it was a an arm of the Lucas Film uh, Enterprise that was THX. Uh, they combined with THX. Wow. Uh, so it was we had the one of the THX people on our team. Uh, okay. For for playback. Uh, in theater playback, right. Uh, so when when the project was done, and and I think and I already know the answer to this, but I just want to kind of share it with with the listeners. Project was done. It's you know in, in whatever level of post production. Then you they actually brought you down to what the the Disneyland theater for for every theater for for the two theaters in the United States. Uh, I personally. Uh, went in and set the equalization curve for the uh, American theaters. That's so cool. That, uh, that's just, I, I've told I, you this before, but I'm, I just think that's so cool. I'm trying to remember how I did the same process in Japan. Because okay. I, I had to go to uh, Tokyo Disneyland for that work. Tokyo Disneyland had the the best sounding uh, theater room because the Japanese so incredibly over engineered the 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 speaker system. Wow! Uh, I mean, they had tons of headroom, and it just <laughs> made it. And, and the, the the room was physically large, uh, so it was that room of of all of the theaters in the world. Uh, because I also visited Euro Disney and saw it there. Okay. But, but I wasn't involved because uh, there was another corporation that was... Right. I forgot what that corporation was called. That was the European entity that did. Yeah, and I, I've heard all the backstory of that. Yeah, and, there's, uh, there's a different thing there. But, that's but, a whole, yeah, but, cr- but crazy I was French. Involved, I was involved in the Tokyo one. So okay. I, I had to go do my thing in Tokyo, too. I, I, I've been to Tokyo Disneyland, but I but EO was already gone. I I never got to see it in that theater, so that that would have been a treat. Yeah, but you know, and of course, then they had the uh, the, the what they called the 4D dimension of the floor, right uh, movement, uh, for that part of the movie. Wow, so I I remember opening weekend. Uh, in fact. Uh, uh, downstairs, I should have I should have brought it with me, but this is just an audio podcast anyway. But downstairs, I still have the T-shirt. I still have Deb and I. Deb and I were were self-proclaimed Disney geeks. I proposed to my wife at Disneyland, and so we've been annual pass holders for years and years. And where I'm sitting right now, I'm about two miles from the Magic Kingdom in in Orlando. So when EO came out. It was a big deal. I mean, it was a big, big deal. It sure was. So were you, you know, tell me about that weekend. Were you there for the grand opening? I was there for the grand opening and the premiere. I was wow. one of the guests. And, I mean, the park was more than packed. Right. And the VIPs were <laughs> a stellar assortment. I, I, I can't even remember. I don't even know... Uh, I just remember it was it, it was one of the most incredible events uh, because you take all the glamour of Hollywood in a Hollywood premiere, and then you take the the Disney element and combine the uh, sincere, devoted people who are fans of Disney right. as a component and layer that on top. And then put MJ on top of all uh, that. Yeah, and and MJ and and it's 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 Lucas and it's 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 everybody. <laughs> it's it's it, it it was it was very crowded. I can say that, and it was a very long wait to be able to get through the theater that day. I did manage to get in the theater and see it, and people were just amazed. Uh, pe- no, people were losing their minds. And I'm not. I'm not just blowing smoke. The the I remember the line started, and if people have never been to Disneyland, this won't mean much. But the line started at the train station, and went all the way down Main Street, and then made a right hand turn over towards the Magic Eye Theater, 
And I seem, you know, this would be easy enough to Google, but I seem to remember it was like six, seven hours to wait in line. And was I think the park was open for two or three continuous days, 24 hours a day. Yeah, they showed it around the clock. And and also, too, not only did the floor vibrate, but they had in-theater effects that were special effects. I think there were right. lasers, and there was uh, some kind of... Strobes. Stro- yeah, and there was some kind of uh, gas. <laughs> what was the... I don't, I don't know what it was. Was it... Uh, yeah, the white smoke. Carbon dioxide. And, yeah. would, would, they, they were, but these things would happen. And, and it was then, nitrous. And then they, the... the side walls and the ceiling of the theater had LEDs embedded in them. So, right. So that when when there was this thing going on on the screen, it was the, the, the visual experience expanded beyond the screen. So not only are you looking at a 3D thing, but it's enveloping. And then the, the room is shaking. So it was wow. It it, it it really was spectacular, and and I'm not just I'm not just saying that because of your huge involvement. But, it was, and, and um, I I only realized how spectacular it was in, in retrospect. I mean, right, yeah, you're right. Me and John are having fun in the room making all these you know cool little musical ideas. But it's like I told you before we before we started recording. You can hear that joy. You can hear that fun in the music. And I'm, and I'm dead serious. When you listen to the sound, the songs from Captain EO, when you listen to the Bad Album, you know, I sometimes joke you can almost hear the food because there was such a camaraderie of the people that were working on those projects. Uh, it comes through. It absolutely comes through in the soundtrack. Especially when you hear him sing Another Part of Me. Right. I mean, that, that vocal... Yeah, is it's got that quality that it's totally undeniable. You you hear Michael's joy in 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 singing that. So Matt, I know in the middle of you, you were working, weren't you working on another project and and something something came up with with EO. You've told me this, and I don't remember exactly how it went. Well. Uh, what happened uh, was uh, I was I was working along furiously on on Captain EO, but there right. was this other project that I had to do in Japan, which was a, a, a long. This had been committed for a half a year prior to that, and as now was this uh, not to name drop, but was this Yumi? This was Yumi Matsutoya. Yumi not Matsutoya. Yumi. Yeah, no, I'm not even joking. About six feet out of my arm's reach, I I think I have her album. Is it Light, Slight, Light, Delight, Kiss? I think that's... Light, Slight, Delight, Kiss. Was was that the project? Uh, That may have been. Uh, I did, uh, in 15 years, I did 15 albums. Wow. I I don't know the historical perspective. Because she did uh, 15 albums before I started working with her. Then I did 15 albums with her. <laughs> I think she may be the most successful uh, recording artist in Japan. It, not for any one point of time, but historically right. over, over the years. So this was a long-standing uh, commitment. Right. And as the date got closer and closer to when I had to go there for that particular thing I was recording I was live tracking so what uh, had to happen uh, was I prepped everybody when I got into the project I said now just so you know I've got this one thing that I have to do it's going to take me about a week in Japan I said I I want to be totally upfront so that this doesn't collide in anything that is needed for Captain EO. We can accomplish uh, before I leave. You're telling this to, to Michael and Barnes? To, to, ev- to, and... to everybody on the production end of Captain EO. I'm making right, everyone right. aware of this. I say, listen. Matt, Matt's, Matt's going to be gone for a week. There's one week that I can't. <laughs> okay. So leading up to that, everything that I was doing, I was building in such a fashion that someone else... Uh, because we were on a daily basis 
the, the choreographers would change the choreography and we would have to change the music to adapt either the rhythmic pattern or no, the breakdown happens here, then the sequence and then another breakdown, or how right. those components work together. Because Michael is so specific, especially his choreographers, about how every part of dance is reflected in the music and how all the music is reflected in the dance. Those, right. those two things are, are part of the same. And I had been doing that, and I said, for all the people who were with me, the assistant engineer, there was another engineer there at the time, I, I filled all these people in. I said, look, here is everything. If you need to provide something, and they say, put so many beats in here. I had everything out. I had, had it charted. I said, just do whatever's asked. Uh, I said, y you just take care of what, what's got to be done. No, no problems. And, he, and they said, oh, yeah, no, this is, this is real clear-cut. We, we don't have any, sure. any problem whatsoever. So uh, I get to Japan, and I get a phone call in the middle of the night, and it's Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and his voice is, Matt, Matt, you've just got to come back. We, we need you. We have to have you here. Uh, and I mean, really pleading. And, and right. Because of the time difference, I mean, he woke me up in the middle of it was like three or four a.m. Uh, and of course, it's daytime here. I'm like in a daze. And now I'm not only in a daze, but I'm really sick to my stomach. And I'm like, oh no, oh my god, my, my worst fears are, are happening here. Right. And I told Michael, I said, okay, Michael, let, let me work out what I have to do to be able to do this. Because uh, I have to speak to the people on this end and make arrangements, and I have to make arrangements with the people there. It, it, what they had to do on their end, because they had studio time booked and scheduled sure. and, and musicians and, and everything, I had to complete a certain amount of work. Then I left and I flew back. I went from the airport to the studio <laughs> with my suitcase, and the crew was at the studio, John Barnes and whoever else we were working with. And I walked in, and I said, okay, I'm here. And then they told me the story of what happened. Okay. And the story of what happened was, here I am the guy who is the protege and the assistant to Bruce Wedeen, who is mm -hmm. the big man. He is the guy. He's Bruce. He's Bruce. No, no one does what Bruce does better than Bruce. Right. Finest engineer in the world. They had asked Bruce to come in and fill in for me. And Michael said, no, we got to have Matt. So... <laughs> Uh, then I, when I found that out, I was I was stunned. I mean, it's humbling. That's amazing. It, it was, but they said it's not that Bruce isn't good. It's just that he's not the same as you, right? And that right. thing that you were doing that because we were so intimately in sync mm -hmm. with that music at that moment in time, uh, he was walking into a situation cold that he had no familiarity with. And I felt so bad for Bruce, the fact that Michael wasn't liking that situation. Right. Nonetheless, I said, okay, well, let, let's do what we got to do. And Correct. what was required was a complete tempo change and some things were had to be shifted in key. Uh, because they, they had totally rewritten what they were going to do. It wasn't like, oh, they were making a small adjustment. They had made a right. wholesale change in the music. And right. we had to then go back and start from scratch on this music and completely build the music from scratch. So John Barnes said to me, Matt, we are going to adjust to you, so we will be working on Tokyo time here in L.A. And I looked at him and I said, Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> because the jet lag from Tokyo is considerable. Oh, it's brutal. Extremely disorienting. And it takes about a yeah. week to get over that 
that, that reorienting process. So basically, whatever time I would be awake and working in Tokyo, we were awake and working in Los Angeles, which meant we were doing a vampire right. know, shift of work. But we got the work done. We got everything completed. We got it exactly the way, the tempo, the, the, however the music was now changed. We, we made all of those changes and executed that and got it mixed and got it to uh, the choreographers. And in the era of computers, this could be addressed differently with digital technology. Sure. But that stuff didn't exist then. Right. So when someone says you've got to completely redo the music, it means you start from zero and you completely reconstruct it. You don't right. take anything from what you previously had and just go to your, your whatever your, your application is or your plug-in and do a couple clicks and adjustments and enter, enter it differently and change the key or change the tempo. Or... I would still say computer, no computer, whatever. Uh, I, I know Michael's working style and I know his comfort level with you. And I think what needed to be accomplished, and I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but uh, there's still such a human factor and a comfort level that goes you know, with, with, with the team that you guys had built. They they could have had the you know the most supercomputer on the planet, and that's not going to replace what you would bring to that project. Well, true, but that's that's what you get when you have a, a team, right? A, a really tight knit working team, uh, and that's yep. what we were, and that's what we did, and we we got it done. And I remember I I finished it. Everyone was happy. They were so grateful to me and then uh, took me to the airport. I flew back to Japan and I finished. I had missed one of the planned recording dates, but I had to be back for whatever the, the remainder of the work was. Right. Uh, but uh, that, was, that, was, that was a real experience of... of so, so on a deal like that, Matt, do you think... Yeah, do you think Michael or Disney or somebody would throw Yumi a little bit a little coin and say, you know, hey, we got to steal Matt for a few days? I I know there was some heavy negotiations in that department. <laughs> I kind of left that up to them. I, right. I, I believe there was compensation that was owed to the musicians because the musicians had been booked. Right, and the so music, Mike, so Michael's team would have would have paid for a little well, bit. Well, it would have been the the production entity, uh, whatever that name of that corporation that was formed for that creating that right, that, that right. Uh, project. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, I love that story, and uh, that, that, that's that's a huge feather in your cap. And I know it is you and I. You and I both have endless love and appreciation towards Bruce that's not to make Bruce look bad in the least but at the same time you were building something with Michael that you can't bring a contractor in in the middle of a project and and uh, expect it to work so it, it the whole thing makes sense that's true that's true and I, and you know I've often often said to people I could never replace Bruce right uh, and, and what Bruce does and, and what Bruce brings to something my thing is what I bring to it and what I do and what my ears hear and how I react to it emotionally. And I can only imagine the, the big wigs at Disney, the executives going, we have to what? <laughs> <laughs> we, Michael wants what? <laughs> Who oh, is this awesome. guy? Uh, I mean, in retrospect, I think about it in those terms and I, I chuckle and laugh. Yeah. No. That's how I always always view, uh, you know, it's like Michael. I always tell people, Michael never took himself terribly seriously because he would always joke and have fun and be goofing around. And in the studio, he was so loose. And you know what I mean when I say this. He didn't take himself seriously, but he took the music right. serious to an utmost degree. Right. He was always totally without any fluctuation or change that was the most serious component for Michael was the music uh, the other stuff 
you could fudge. You could have fun doing it, making it, right. you know, and enjoy the process and, and you know, make jokes and, and, you know, goof on people and stuff when you're in the process. But when it came to the music, there was no uh, room for uh, right. any, anything other than the absolute top best uh, performance from everyone. Yep. All right, so this is in no means a uh, you know a goodbye or anything like that. Um, you and I are going to do this again and talk about a couple other projects. Give me just sort of a takeaway when you think about Captain EO and the sessions and the project. I mean, it really is like no other project ever. I don't know. What, what, what do you take away from that? It's another one of those moments uh, I never expected in my life. That when, 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 in retrospect, when I view it, and I view like what we just discussed, uh, these things have, have, have a strange course. Uh, you know, every, everyone's life, uh, no matter what you expect the future to be, it's never that exact thing. Even if in your, your, your dreams and your imaginations, you think, oh, I'm going to do this, and then you do eventually do that. There is something about it that you could never expect to happen along the way. To, to have been able to be on so many things that were so completely unique, and in retrospect, so incredibly historic in nature. And people come up to me and, and, and say things to me and say, oh, but that was, and then it's followed by some description of, that was the first time that was ever done. Or that's the biggest, best, most famous, whatever. And that was never anything that was ever on the radar in, in my life. I always wanted to do something that was, was good in purpose. Right. That was more important to me. And I was never in it to be famous or to... I was never in it for the money. So, uh, consequently, I'm not famous and I'm not rich. <laughs> but the experiences I had, there is no amount of money on the planet that could, that could ever buy them. Totally, um, totally agree. And, and anyone who's worked with Michael knows that. Or... or experienced anything with Michael, gone to a Michael concert, and had that moment uh, of, of <laughs> being in a crowd that size and hearing the music that you hear with being surrounded by however many tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are who are feeling exactly the way that you're feeling I mean that's that's it's, it's, it's just a remarkable thing uh, to, to put it in perspective to think and, and one of the most amazing things is that we not only got to share in the, the, the experience of uh, helping Michael create what he created but you know we're living in a time that Michael Jackson lived in because as, as time marches forward you know, Michael's music uh, marches forward too, and it'll, right. it'll be around forever. Uh, that's the one I don't think about. <laughs> My mind doesn't right. go doesn't go there, but uh, because you know you ha you have to live in the moment. Yep. But but there's that reality of of uh, things are special things things the, the here and the now, and the moment. The gift of being present in the moment is is a, is a tremendous gift. Awesome. Mr. Forger, I love you like a brother. I think you're uh, just a, a sweet, dear guy and uh, have endless respect for you. Well, so. I enjoyed uh, doing this and having all these fond memories uh, kind of brought back and some of the experiences, some of the things that we shared. We shared with Michael and we shared with Bruce and we we shared with uh, all those other people, uh, Quincy, uh, everybody, Rod Temperton. Uh, yep. We we've all known all of these people and, and had uh, just absolutely delightful times. All right, we are going to uh, wrap this up. You and I are going to talk and uh, do do some more of these. Uh, I want I want to dig into a couple more albums and uh, and, and hang out. Hopefully. 
in person at some point, but for now, th okay. this this isn't too bad. Well, you cut me loose and ask me a question, and we'll talk. <laughs> All right, Matt. Have a great night, great week, and uh, stay safe. Uh, same to you and your family, and thank you. Thank you. Take care, my friend. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Graphics and creative input by Andy Healy. Special thanks to Golden Age Project and Tributaries Cables. My name is Brad Sundberg, host of In the Studio, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.